Everybody knew that, that either this could be an orderly yelling across a no-man's land, sure. or it would be a very dangerous melee. And it turned out to be a very dangerous melee. In September of 2011, protesters started gathering in Zuccotti Park in New York City to protest income inequality. They were protesting the way wealth is distributed in the U.S., what they categorized as corporate greed, governmental policies relating to financial regulations, big banks, corporations, too much profit, and Wall Street. It became known as Occupy Wall Street, and the protest in Zuccotti Park lasted for a couple months. People set up campsites, they never left, they sang songs, they started petitions, they read speeches. It became controversial, and eventually in November, police and law enforcement forced them out of the park. But it was largely peaceful. The same cannot be said for a protest that happened just earlier that year, about halfway across the world, that started in a similar way, but had an absolutely, wildly different ending. This was the occupation of Tahrir Square in Cairo, Egypt, that began in January of 2011. And my storyteller today was there. Welcome to episode eight of the I Was There When podcast. My name is Graham Wood, and I was there when Tahrir Square was occupied and Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak was overthrown. So I've been fangirling over Graham Wood since probably 2015. He is a journalist with The Atlantic. Um, He also freelances for several other publications. But he is sort of a rare breed of journalist that we don't see a lot of anymore, where he's the kind of guy that is sent to crazy places around the world and spends months and months there gathering background and talking to people about one specific story. And then he comes out with this super long, amazing, almost novel-like story about usually situations that I know nothing about. So in other words, he has the life that I always dreamed of having when I was in college, and he's extremely talented at it. So he has been covering the Middle East specifically since the early 2000s. He actually got his postgraduate degree at the American University of Cairo. Um, He learned Arabic there as well. His main subject for the past few years has been ISIS, and that's actually how I came to be familiar with his work. He wrote a story in 2015 that sort of broke the internet. It was called What ISIS Really Wants. And this was, to my knowledge, the first really in-depth investigative look into who ISIS was and what they want, and specifically how they were different from Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda was more of a political organization. I'm grossly simplifying things at this point. But what Graham really uncovered with this profile of ISIS was that they are, at their core, a religious organization. So they're an ideological organization, which you could argue is harder to fight than an organization like Al-Qaeda that's more interested in power or money. So again, I'm super oversimplifying, but that story he wrote in The Atlantic, which I will link to in the show notes, just blew up the scene. That's probably a bad pun. But it 
it came on the scene at a time when no one really understood ISIS, and it was an incredibly researched and well-written story. Graham actually told me in my interview with him that ISIS is a, quote, terrible organization, and it's been a huge pleasure writing about it. That just kind of made me laugh. I can deeply identify with that sentiment in my own work. I started following Graham's work after that, and I'm going to link to some of his other stories in the show notes because they're amazing. He wrote another story a couple years later about there is a guy who washed up on a beach in Australia in like, I think the 70s. But to this day, people still don't know who he is or who he was, I should say. It's a fascinating story. He writes articles that end up reading like fiction, and it's a lot of fun to read them. So I was thrilled when he agreed to talk with me for this episode of the I Was There When podcast. And before we get into it, I need to give a little bit of background on the situation in Egypt that brought him there. So this is one of those stories for which to find a beginning, you could go back decades and centuries even. And to find the ending, you would have to go forward the same amount of time. This is sort of another chapter in the history of a nation that goes back to the beginning of mankind, for the most part. We like to think of things in terms of having a beginning and ending and having good guys and bad guys, but this is the kind of messy human nature type stories that just doesn't offer us that privilege. So I'm going to start with my explanation in 1981. I think that makes the most sense. But essentially what happened in 1981 in Egypt was that its then president, Anwar el-Sadat, was assassinated. At that point, a leader in the Egyptian military, Hosni Mubarak, took over as president. He then declared a state of emergency in Egypt, understandably. Its president had just been assassinated. And we'll get into in a little bit what that state of emergency entailed exactly, but it suspended, in a lot of ways, the rule of law. It sort of centralized power within the government, um, and it suspended some basic rights of the Egyptian people, including some aspects of their judicial system. That state of emergency under the new President Mubarak lasted for 30 years, making him one of the longest-running presidents in Egyptian history. People started calling him Pharaoh by the end of things. In 2011, the people had had enough, and that's where things started to get dicey. The conflict that led up to the Tahrir Square uprising, or also known as the Egyptian Revolution now in 2011, was largely political, but it was also in some ways religious. And not in the way you might think. Egypt is known as the most secular nation in the Middle East, and a lot of Egyptians then and now didn't like that. So this is interesting, especially as you've done a lot of writing about the Islamic State from a religious point of view as well. So Egypt has always been hailed, at least by the U.S. um, in recent history, as a secular country. So when you were there in the early 2000s, did did, did that feel like an accurate representation? Was it a secular country? Egypt's like every other country in that it has secularism and it has uh, also a very strong religious side. And sure. I knew many people there who, who were uh, as secular, that is, uh, who weren't thinking constantly about religious matters in much the same, same way that I, I typically do not. Um, but I also met lots of people who, who were, were deeply religious, and many of the mm-hmm. main co- campus controversies at the American University when I was there were... were 
about religion, about whether you could wear the niqab, the, the pretty much all-covering garment right. that, that women wear. Uh, and that is, students wanted to wear it and were forbidden from co- from covering their entire faces by the rules of the of the university. So, sure. Um, I think one thing that people didn't realize during those those early years was that even though Egypt was not ruled by an Islamist government, mm-hmm. the average opinion of the people you'd meet, I think, would would probably be more like the opinions that you'd you'd find among evangelical Christians in the Deep South than they would be like secular people from other other areas of the country. Really? So in in terms of their religiosity? Yeah, if if you ask people what the role is of of religion and government, they might not mm-hmm. say in in general would not say that they want something like ISIS, but they would right. say on average that they that they think uh religion should be used as a guide to the laws sure. of the state. Which okay. is, is something that that in the United States of course we we have uh specifically forbidden in our constitution. There's certainly people who, who who would like that, and I think the opinion of the people who say that the Ten Commandments should be a guide to legislation in the United States mm-hmm. would find many analogs in the intensity of that opinion mm-hmm. in in Egypt among people who would say no, we, we want to have Islam reflected in the laws of our of our land, sure. either in a in a really strong way like like ISIS in a small mm-hmm. minority, or mm-hmm. in in a in a in another way where, where it's more like a guiding principle. Ooh. We are starting right off the bat with something really controversial. So I just want to interject here quickly and say I disagree a little bit with Graham here in some of his characterizations. I understand what he's saying about the similarities between people who, for example, would like to see a Christian set of values influence public policy and people who would like to see a separate religion's values, such as Islam, influence their public policy. In a philosophical sense, obviously those, have, those things have a lot in common. One of the things that I take issue with that he said was that the U.S. Constitution strictly forbids using a Christian set of values to guide public policy. What I would say to that is obviously our Constitution does forbid the government from endorsing or mandating a religion. However, every person involved in policy from a voter up to the president has some set of values on which they're basing their decision making. So for example, every question you can think of, should we offer welfare to people in need? Should healthcare be free? Should we permit our citizens to kill each other with no legal consequence? These are all moral questions that rely on a value system to answer, and everyone uses that. For some people, that value system is religious, For some people, that religion is Christianity. For others, maybe it's Buddhism or pacifism or whatever they want to call it, secular humanism even. But every person does have that set of values. And not all of those value systems, just by virtue of them being value systems, can be meaningfully or usefully compared with each other. They often promote very different things and with very different results. So under Mubarak, was he at all religious? Would you say that they, people like you're referencing, would they have felt like Islam was being reflected in the laws under Mubarak? People did not think that Mubarak was uh, an Islamic figure or was governing according to Islam. He he was governing as a secular person and as his predecessor. His his predecessor was actually a religious person privately, but was not understood to be instituting Islam into the Egyptian state. And so he, for years, had basically declared, so the country was under emergency laws. Is that is that like martial law? 
It's a kinder, gentler form of martial law. So okay. for decades, Egypt had been under emergency law, which which meant that there were, were restrictions on civil liberties. There was uh, an expansion of what the state could do without any kind of judicial review. Basically, it, it was an authoritarian state, but mm-hmm. among the more benign authoritarian states. And okay. there was a lot of upset among people who thought that the idea of an emergency is uh, time-limited, that it's, you can't have an emergency that, that lasts 27 years or so. So it, it instead... It, it seemed like something was wrong about that the application of, of, of that right. whole situation. I think a lot of people who experienced Cairo as a functioning city came to think of the emergency as just a, a pretext to keep people's political freedoms curtailed. Sure. So were there a lot of human rights violations going on during that time? So the answer is yes. There were many human rights violations that were happening on a, on a regular okay. basis at the hands of the Egyptian Ministry of the Interior, police, and part of that is just a reflection of Egypt being at a state of development that uh, sure. wasn't that isn't the same as you'd find in the United States, where there right. are also human rights violations. That, that right. But it was also a, a function of Egypt having having secret police, having Muhabarat, mm-hmm. having uh, the name of the secret police in, in mm-hmm. Egypt and other Arab countries. And then also having a, a state that jealously protected it, its privileges and would not take kindly to people who objected to that. So when you were there in the early 2000s when you were at the university and when you went back in the years following, I understand you've been around the Middle East, you've been to Iraq and other places like that. Did it feel? How did it feel just kind of walking down the street? Did it feel like a generally physically safe place to be? as compared to other Middle Eastern countries, I mean, aside from Israel, did it feel relatively safe? So on a daily basis, it felt perfectly safe. Egypt was not like Mogadishu or Somalia, where right. you're going to get shot in any given moment. Nor was it like Iraq or North Korea, where you'd be very safe walking down the street because it's an, it's an authoritarian state in, the, in a non-benign kind of way. Egypt was a normal right. country, and it was a, it was a pleasure to live there. That means that, yes, it was possible that you'd get mugged. Uh, it was likely sure. that you'd get harassed if you're a Western woman walking around at a certain time of day in a certain place. But the idea that, that the authoritarianism of, of Mubarak made everyday life difficult is not so. In fact, everyday life was pretty comfortable and much mm-hmm. more so for me as a foreigner than for me if I were an Egyptian, and especially if I were an Egyptian who had strong Islamist leanings or other political opinions that w- would have been sure. inconsistent with the with the state as governed by Hosni Mubarak. Was it the kind of place where if you were mugged, like you said, you would call the police and they would come help? Uh, if, the, if I saw a policeman after I was mugged, then yeah, I, I would ask him for help. Yeah. Uh, no question. If I were an Egyptian, maybe I would feel some trepidation more, and maybe okay. I'd feel a lot of trepidation more if I were an Egyptian who was visibly pious in, sure. in practice of religion and pious okay. in, in ways that, that might not be consistent with uh, with Mubarak's rule. Right. So it, I, I wouldn't say that there was a totally consistent even application of the law, but again, for the sure. vast majority of people, the concern was more about competence than about malevolence. Sure. Okay. So let's talk about the uprising. So when did you get there? I arrived uh, as the uprising had begun. The uprising began okay. with a kind of low-level occupation of Tahrir Square. 
mm-hmm. which I had seen in very brief forms before. That is, there had okay. been little protests in Tahrir Square. And then in January of 2011, uh, it got big. They, they took over the whole square. There was no sign of an end to the protest in, in sight. Mm-hmm. And the real signal that this was different from other times was that Egypt turned off the Internet, just turned it off. There was no really? Internet that, that, was, that was working. And uh, when Would that, that happened, have been a decision coming from Mubarak's side of it? Yeah, that, Yes, that's a decision yeah. that came from the absolute highest level of, of right. the Egyptian government. It, it must have been uh, one that, that Mubarak signed off on. Okay. And so when you say occupation of the square, you mean people were, you know, setting up tents and basically starting to live there during the yes, protest? Yes, that's right. It, it was, if you look at, like, Occupy Wall Street and Zuccotti Park, mm-hmm. right. that's kind of what it looked like. It was it was just a, a, a bunch of, of people who were there and who said, we have grievances and we're not going to leave until until they're they're met. So were they demanding from the outset that Mubarak resign or be ousted, or did they just want you know some some reforms? I think yes, they they wanted Mubarak to to leave. That was the goal. They, they right. said they said pretty clearly, or at least that it was a, a a clear top level desire of the group that Mubarak have some plan for resignation. I mean, it, it wasn't just that Mubarak would have to leave, but for a long time it was well known that Gamal Mubarak, Hosni Mubarak's son, was being groomed for the presidency. Okay. And people wanted to make sure that that, that old dynastic succession was off the table and that there would be sure. something else instead. So tell me about the mood in the square when you arrived there. I mean, from from the footage that I've seen, it looks fairly calm until it wasn't. I guess. Uh, yes, it, in the very, very beginning, it was it was fairly calm. But I have to say, that it, there was the mood in the square, and then there was the mood in the city, and it, you could tell that something was going on immediately. Not even once you arrived in Cairo, but once you arrived on the airplane going to Cairo. Mm-hmm. I was on a Lufthansa flight going mm-hmm. through Munich, and uh, it was an almost empty flight. The only other people there, I think, were journalists. Katie Kirk was on, on the flight, <laughs> and. It, it was not normal to to have an international airline going in with that kind of empty load. And then I arrived, got my bags, and I noticed that the airport was just filled with people, packed with people, all of them trying to leave. There were oh. lots and lots of foreigners who were just sitting around, and many of them were, were literally waiting for the first flight out. They were literally sitting there, and they would be told turns out the next flight is going to Cyprus. So they'd get on that flight, and then they would end up in Cyprus having no expectations. I'm kidding. So this was just out of of fear? This was out of concern that things would go badly. I mean, no one had seen Egypt on the brink quite like this before. Uh, It was much more concerning than than times when there had been terrorist incidents because it had gripped the whole city. It was shut down. I had to sneak around and eventually find a cab driver who, who was... Uh, as intrepid as I was, to take me from the airport into the city because there was a curfew uh, and Mm. there was a chance that I would just be stuck there. So we drove off and and the traffic is generally uncooperative coming in from the airport in Mm. Cairo to to the city. Now there was almost no one on the street. It was completely Mm. empty. There were a, a few armored personnel carriers that I saw. And there were roads, the main roads, which... With no traffic at all, you could probably get into the city in, I don't know, about 15 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's always traffic, so it's always, I don't know, but maybe about double that. Yeah. This time, it took, I think, about two hours for me to get into the city 
because the main roads were cut off and okay. we just had to go through back streets and those back streets were tense. I mean, super tense and dangerous. So, it, yeah. really quick, they, were the, ro- the main roads were cut off by police or by protesters? By police, the military okay. actually. It was, okay. It was the Egyptian military that, that had tanks on the road and right. they were controlling everything. Okay. It, this was, I think, getting toward the evening hours, so it was not really, it was not quite darkness, but it was, it was, it was getting there and it was after yeah. the time when you were not supposed to be on the streets. So we okay. were driving on back streets and it, and on the back streets, those were controlled not by, well, not by the military, not by the police and not even by protesters, but by neighborhood squads that had mobilized just to control their neighborhoods. And you, you never knew hmm. what type of neighborhood it was going to be, and what type of squad was going to be patrolling it. So really? we would go block by block and we would be stopped by crowds who would check us out, who would talk to me, talk to my driver, and they would approach with makeshift weapons, clubs, cleavers. It was, if you got to the wrong group, then you could see that they were ready to hack people to death if they, if they felt the need to do so. So, and what, so what sort of questions were they asking you? They were asking me, who are you? What are you doing? Where are you going? Um, what's your purpose for being here? And uh, luckily, Every step of the way, they were nothing but kind to me once they finally ascertained my, my purpose. They looked at me, they, they could figure out pretty fast that I was not a Egyptian. Right. I told my driver, just tell them I'm a journalist, tell them yeah. the truth. And um, I probably went through half a dozen to a dozen checkpoints like this from neighborhood to neighborhood, just bouncing around trying to get finally to my destination. Mm-hmm. And at least a few times I was told, oh, well, welcome to Egypt, sorry about this. Was there ever a moment when you thought, I should turn back around? I mean, what did that feel like on an emotional level for you? Obviously, you're a professional and you've done this sort of thing before, maybe. But what was that like? Uh, I was definitely concerned about the direction things were going in. Because these moments, these revolutionary moments, they really could go either way. Uh, They could turn the city of Cairo, which I had known as a functioning metropolis, Mm -hmm. into a all-out war zone. And if that happened... um, then yeah, that would be <laughs> that would be awfully concerning. So it certainly occurred to me that there might the next checkpoint might not be one I could talk my way through. Mm. On the other hand, I've talked my way through checkpoints before, so mm-hmm. I think it was I, I, I think the calculation was it, it was one I had to make, but it wasn't that close a call. I, I knew that sure. the center of gravity of all news in the world was in Tahrir Square, and if mm-hmm. I got five miles away from Tahrir Square and then turned around so I could go to Cyprus then uh, mm-hmm. I would regret it for a very long time after this. <laughs> sure. In those neighborhood groups, were there ever any children? No, I never saw children. Okay. I, I mean, I saw people who were, let's just say they were on the boundary of, of hmm. adulthood. They they might yeah. have been 16, 17 years old so hmm. with a, a cricket bat or whatever. But hmm. I don't think I ever saw anyone who, who was obviously a kid. And were all those... I don't even know what to call them. I don't want to call them mobs because I don't necessarily want to be negative against them. But were they all politically motivated? I mean, were all of these people interested in Mubarak's resignation or was were they just kind of reacting to tension? So I'm sure there are neighborhoods, probably ones that are closely associated with the military, where they would be political. They would be mm-hmm. protecting the state. Um, mm-hmm. But 
I, w- I think in almost all the cases that I saw on that, that road trip in, the people were concerned about their neighborhood security. And, you know, you can imagine this in your own neighborhood. In the U.S., if there was something that went down and it was really crazy and you didn't know whether the police were going to be coming to the, to, to work the next day, right. then what would your neighbors do? You'd right. go into you your together. house and you'd, you'd look for the weapons that you have, uh, which in the United States often means guns, mm-hmm. and you'd go to your neighbors and you'd say, okay, there's 15 guys on this block and they all are concerned about making sure that, that each other is safe. Everyone takes a few hours shift, stands at the at the beginning of the block, and just checks out everybody who comes through. It, it's the same uh, techniques that, that we would use to ensure our security if, if we ever had to, sure. to face a, a possible breakdown of the state, as, as all Egyptians were at that very moment. Oh, a terrifying concept. So tell me what it was like once you got into the square. So this it would have been close to nighttime, as you said. Yeah, so when I first arrived at my hotel, which was... About a 15-minute walk at most from Tahrir Square, and it's okay. in the middle of downtown. The Windsor Hotel. I've gone back many times over the years. It's an old mm-hmm. kind of colonial officer hangout. <laughs> uh, lovely historic spot in a very busy area. So the first thing I noticed was that it was no longer busy. It was super sure. quiet. You could mm-hmm. walk out on the street, and we're talking like zombie apocalypse quiet. What you'd be normally accustomed to is something more like midtown Manhattan levels of traffic. Okay, sure. So I walked through the streets until I finally got to Tahrir Square. And, yep, it was exactly as advertised. There were people hanging out. Uh, There were little groups that were forming in different areas of the square with different demands. There were different languages I could could hear. I I heard people speaking in in Egyptian Arabic, but also people speaking in French, some people speaking in English, and people with very different sort of attitudes toward things. There were mm-hmm. some who were they'd like sit in grassy patches and then have political discussions about democracy, about what was happening next. But it, it was mm-hmm. a nonviolent, politically heady, but not really dangerous in any obvious way, mm-hmm. atmosphere of kind of exuberant feeling of opportunity. I, I was, even for me as a journalist, kind of intoxicating to watch what had previously been a, a very buttoned-down, politically buttoned-down society with mm-hmm. this small garden of political opinion that was sure. being cultivated by many people sure. from many different types of Egyptian life. Hmm. So what was your strategy as a journalist? Were you talking to people or were you just observing at this point? My first strategy usually is to prowl, seeing what's happening. I mean, think of how large this space is. Uh, right. It's bigger than several football fields. Right. Uh, and it's not a space that's really designed for people to be milling about. So you could have something important going on that's unbeknownst to you, just 100 yards away. Mm. And so if you don't just wander around and see what's going on, then yeah, you'll you'll be you know you'll miss it. So that my mm. first order of business was just to kind of do a, a census of who was there, and then right. start talking to the people who seemed ready to talk. And so, what was your general sense of the the people that you ended up talking to? Were they prepared to get violent? Did they expect violence? Uh, The people I spoke to did not expect violence, or at least Mm -hmm. they weren't ready for it. There may very well have been some people who were, but the first people I found, uh, some of them were speaking English, so they were kind of easy Mm -hmm. prey for me as an English-speaking journalist. (laughs) I found Mm -hmm. them, and they were young students who were talking about democracy, talking about politics. It had Mm -hmm. very much the same air of uh, youth-led 
teach in uh, that you might have found in any generation past in in, sure. in Western countries. Sure. Um, there were people who were there for the long haul, who were sleeping mm-hmm. there, who would they had they had food, they would offer me food very kindly. Uh, and then there were other people who were going home um, to go to their mom and dad's house uh, <laughs> when they got tired of things. So it was a wide range of commitments and expectations. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, there were also people, though, who at that stage clearly must have been making prep- preparations because when things did get violent, it must have been a day or two later, they were ready for it. They, right. they had the tactics down. Um, from my research, anyway, I found that that was mostly the Muslim Brotherhood were setting up sort of like temporary hospitals almost. Is that right? Yes. I want to give some sort of, however clumsy, definition here of what the Muslim Brotherhood is, or at least what it was at this point in Egypt. The term Muslim Brotherhood is sort of nebulous because it's such a huge organization and it exists in so many countries and in so many different factions that wherever you look at it, it's going to look different. So I'm going to try and focus on Egypt at this point. But by way of background, the Muslim Brotherhood started around the late 30s and its motto is Islam is the solution. So this is a political organization that wants Sharia law or Islamic principles to be the way societies are governed. The Muslim Brotherhood also states as a goal that it wants to set up an Islamic caliphate. So this is a similarity that they have with the Islamic State, which shares the goal of establishing a very conservative Islamic nation state. So one of the hallmarks of the Muslim Brotherhood at least this is what leaders in the Brotherhood would tell you in Egypt, is that they want to accomplish these political ends by nonviolent means. So we're, Graham and I are talking about how they, while this was happening in Tahrir Square, the Muslim Brotherhood was organizing. They were setting up tents for people who were hurt. They had, through Egyptian society at this point, they had set up schools, hospitals, pharmacies. They were responsible for a lot of infrastructure, and this was undoubtedly a way for them to gain popularity with their countrymen. Now, they have not always been nonviolent, and in fact, several countries have designated them a terrorist organization, including Egypt, although that didn't happen until after this situation in Tahrir Square in 2011. This, as you can imagine, has been a super hot-button issue in the United States, and we still have not designated the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization, although there is a bill right now floating out there on Capitol Hill that would do that. It was introduced by Ted Cruz in 2015. And actually, a couple days ago, on July 11th, there was a hearing in a House Oversight Committee about the Muslim Brotherhood. They read from a report that talked about how the Muslim Brotherhood, according to intelligence communities, is in the United States and is trying to influence culture on behalf of Islam. Now, the Muslim Brotherhood is also known to be sort of a parent organization to certified terrorist organizations like Hamas, and it is also considered a parent organization to Al-Qaeda. So it's a super controversial group. And as Graham and I are talking about, with them setting up infrastructure and helping with this uprising in Tahrir Square, a lot of people were understandably suspicious that they were behind this uprising. 
The Muslim Brotherhood was notoriously not a fan of President Mubarak. He had reportedly arrested members of them. He'd shut down schools that they had set up. And you can see why. This is a religious organization, and Mubarak was a secular so-called president. Now, people who suspected the Muslim Brotherhood of being behind this uprising had maybe even more reason to believe that after it ended. We're going to talk more about that later. Really, on the barricades, once the barricades were up, Mm-hmm. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood had, I would say, more, yeah, had more organization than than, than other groups. I don't want to make that sound sinister, though, because they were... Sure, no. The Muslim Brotherhood it, is one of the few organized groups, so it it, it was not... Um, it makes sense that they would organize something like that for the protesters. Yes, very much so. Mm-hmm. Very much so. So this is a random question, but I kept seeing this in footage of it. Why do people hold up their shoes? There was all kinds of chance, and every some every time it seems somebody would be hold like they would be holding up their shoes. Do you know what that means? Yeah, well, the 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 shoe, and especially the sole of the shoe, is uh, a dirty thing and okay. an insult in Egyptian culture. Um, okay. And other cultures, yeah. So if, if you're holding up your shoe, then then it shows real contempt for the person you're you're you're, you're brandishing at it at. I mean, in Egyptian Arabic, if you say "umak um, gazma," <laughs> that means your mom's a shoe, and that's the kind <laughs> of insult that uh, will get you physically attacked if you say it to someone. Oh that's wow! Anything bad, okay. of course, but "umak gazma" is not something you want to say to, to an right. Egyptian person. Okay, sure. That's funny. It, it's funny not being totally fluent in a language, but knowing something like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean. But it, I suppose I, that's a valuable thing to know. <laughs> Yeah, and culturally, we've you know we've seen images like uh, of the statue of Saddam Hussein right. in Baghdad being toppled, and right. what happens next? Is a bunch of people who hated Saddam attacked it with their shoes. It's the same. Right. Result. And didn't someone throw a shoe at President Bush? Yes. Uh, a, right. A journalist that has politician. so many deeper levels now. <laughs> I never understood that. Yeah, it's it's not just throwing a shoe. It's 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 like throwing feces or something. It's, right. Uh, it's a, a very, very serious yeah, implication. Wow, that's interesting. Okay, so tell me about when it started to turn violent. So you said it was a couple days maybe after you got there. Do, do you know how that started? Yes. The, I was in the square when it really went down. So one morning I heard a blip on my phone that indicated that an email message had come through, which meant the okay. Internet had been turned back. Oh, on. okay. Okay. Uh, and I don't know if that was a precipitating factor, but it, I do distinctly recall that there was a change that had happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went down to the square, and there was, for the first time in my observation, a real face-off that was happening, uh, or okay. about to happen. Probably about an hour after I got there, there was a crowd of pro-Mubarak protesters who came in from the direction of the Egyptian Museum, mostly. Uh, so the right. square has some kind of complex roundabouts within it that sort of spider out in many different directions. One of the directions is toward the Egyptian Museum, which has a bunch of mummies in it, very distinctive mm. kind of pink neoclassical building. Mm-hmm. And from there, there was a crowd of people who were they were holding up the portrait of Hosni Mubarak. Okay. And they were moving toward us. I was within the mix of anti-Mubarak protesters. 
Okay. And uh, you could see them sh- coming because they were all holding up the same the same picture. And my first thought was this could go really badly, especially if the kind of battle lines between the two groups mix. The pro Mubarak people were in their own crowd. There was no one within them, as far as I could tell, who was anti Mubarak. And then in my mm-hmm. side, there was definitely no one who was pro Mubarak. They mm-hmm. were just a bunch of mostly mixed protesters, but. As we'll see in a second, um, I think also maybe a little weighted toward toward Muslim Brotherhood. So hmm. I I first wondered, are these groups going to interlace, and if so, are they going to start wailing on each other? Because then that's how things would get to be a right. real melee, where, where yeah. you know people would get beaten to death, and no one would be able to stop them because it would be complete chaos. Right. And I think everybody else had the same thought. Everybody knew that that either this could be an orderly yelling across a no-man's land or it would be a very dangerous melee. And it turned out to be a very dangerous melee. And the Mm -hmm. first thing that that was a sign that that it was going to go badly was the volume went down. I mean, it was was not as loud as it was a few seconds before. And that was people catching their breath and getting ready for violence. And then when they started, when I started to hear the volume come back up, it, it came up not as a kind of steady murmur as it was before, but as a chant. The chant was "God is God is greatest," and it was enough. So it was like a, it was a steady hum that I heard. And that's that's Allahu Akbar. That's Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, getting louder and louder. And then uh, the violence began when bricks and stones started to be thrown. And at one point I, I looked up and I, I had my notebook in my hand uh, and put it kind of in front of my eyes slash head to the kind of makeshift helmet. But looking up, you could see dozens of rocks, bricks, stones that were overhead at any given moment. So it, it was like full-on throwing of things. People were... With the intent to hurt people. Yeah. I mean, these are things that if they hit your head, it would be bad. And sure enough, I started seeing people coming back through the crowd who were streaming blood from their faces. And the Mubarak group was the one that lost its discipline first. They were pushed back by the group I was with, who, like I say, I, I think were mostly brotherhood. So was that about, was the group yeah. you were with, were they the ones that started the throwing? Could you tell? I couldn't tell. Uh, when I looked up, there, there were bricks being thrown in both directions, and mm-hmm. it seems to have happened almost at the same time. So yeah. um, I don't rule out the possibility that there, there was instigation or desire for instigation, planned instigation by one side mm-hmm. or the other. Yeah. What was noteworthy, of course, is that the bricks and stones, people already had them. Right. I mean, we're, we're talking about a paved environment. It's not as if it's not a dirt not road. Dirt road. It's not a place where you can just, you know reach into the soil and grab a stone and throw it. These were stones that, that, that people were ready. They had kind of armed themselves with. Um, and they were so, just pulling up from the pavement. Uh, some of them were pulled up from the pavement. Many of them, I think, might have been taken in from elsewhere. And, and mm-hmm. as the occupation progressed, there was a manufacture of these stones, too. So there was definitely no pulling things up from the pavement. And then the banking of them, so that people would take big stones that couldn't be thrown, break them into smaller ones, and then put them in places at the the edges, uh, the periphery of, of the kind of the perimeter of the square, so mm-hmm. that if there was another attack, 
they would be ready and well armed with stones to to repel it. Wow. But at the time, it, it was just we are we've got these stones and we're going to throw them at the other side until the other side runs away. And that's exactly what happened. There yeah. there was breaking of ranks by the Mubarak side, and then they were chased, and a few of them were caught and beaten. Um, and then pulled away to what turned out to be a, a kind of makeshift jail that, that the protesters had, had constructed. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, we pushed them back. The side that I was on was p- pushing them back all the way mm-hmm. to the Egyptian Museum and then a bit further further back. And, it, and I was just observing, of course, but had the whole time my notebook over my head right. and a flip camera taking video okay. of, of this when I could. And the last thing that I, I got to before I kind of pulled back, because it, it looked like it would be dangerous for me to, to continue and follow the Mubarak protesters. And last thing I saw was a, a, a guy who was crouching there, smiling, and had a bucket over his head. He just was sitting there. Uh, kind <laughs> just of for safety? The show. He, he looked like, to be honest, I, you know, I've gone through Tahrir Ta- Square so many times, and he looked like mm-hmm. someone who had just worked there, <laughs> like someone mm-hmm. who, who, who was there every day. And he wasn't going to move. He was, this is his, he was <laughs> this his spot. He was but yeah. what can you do? Well, these potentially skull-crushing stones are going back and forth, but put, take a bucket a bucket, on your put it on your head and then uh, wait for it to pass. Wait for it's over. Was he an older guy? No, he was probably, I would guess, about 30. Did you see anybody lose their lives? I did not. Uh, so there, there were people who died that day, mostly mm-hmm. that night. I spent another, I would guess, few hours in the square I saw people riding in on camels. <laughs> it was it was wow. a full-scale medieval battle. Not only the, the livestock that was involved, but also the technology. I mean, remember, we're, right. we're picking up rocks and throwing them. Uh, that's <laughs> So guns aren't a commonly held possession? No. I mean, guns are definitely available in Egypt. But I did not see anyone with a gun, except okay. for Egyptian soldiers who were who were visible mm-hmm. during much of this this whole altercation. I, I never heard a gunshot. Now, okay. there were gunshots, but by the time evening came around, I was actually physically removed from the square by the Egyptian military. Okay. Um, did they know was, you were a journalist, or were they just mo- removing people in groups? They knew I was a journalist, and they knew that I... So I, I think the precipitating thing that, that got them to pull me out was that I caught on, on video the some Egyptian military. So the Egyptian military, oh. w- w- they were obviously institutionally supportive of Mubarak, but they were not, as far as I could tell, helping the pro-Mubarak protesters. They were just okay. standing by. I took a, some video that, that clearly caught some of them, and at some point, some soldiers were dispatched into the crowd and physically dragged me out of, of the square, mm. took away my camera. And lucky for me, I, I must say, they didn't detain me much further. They just ejected me from the square in a way that I couldn't get back in until the next day. Okay. Uh, during which time, by the way, many of the killings that, that did happen actually took place. So the, the square became, from that you know pretty high, dangerous baseline, much more dangerous over the next 12 hours, and I, I was not there to, to, to be threatened by that or to observe it. Kind of providential a little bit. Did you lose the footage on your camera? I lost the camera and the footage, yeah. Yeah. But then you still, so after even after seeing that violence, you went back the next day, back in. Yeah, first thing. I, I, so that once I was pulled out, uh, I then made my way back to my mm-hmm. hotel, the Windsor, mm-hmm. got my stuff, and my plan was to go and make a, kind of safe house for myself. I had an apartment oh. that 
that I could use it on the island of Zamalek, which is one of the more secure areas in general. And so what, what I what I wanted to do is to make sure that there was a place I could fall back to that mm. was had some canned goods in it. If Egypt went the way of Somalia, mm. which again we didn't know if that was going to happen. Right. Somalia had been in anarchy for at that point decades. So I eventually went to the hotel and then got a car to take me from there to Zamalek, and it was very very tense at that point. I got about yeah. I would say five minutes down the road before my car was stopped. Um, one of those neighborhood gangs pulled me from the car. It like Without the window. Me. Well, the car was stopped, so I I, okay. I got out of the car because there was no other choice. Mm, happening, yeah. And uh, yeah, it was was physically dragged down the street to you know what, what seemed to me a very uncertain fate at that point. But eventually, they brought me to a military checkpoint, and that again was could have gone either way. The, the Egyptian military and intelligence have well, definitely disappeared people in the past. Right. Uh, that didn't happen to me though. They decided to let me go on my way. And I said to them, you know, walk me over to the bridge so that I can get over to Zamalek. Mm. And then I'll walk over to Zamalek and you can see where I'm going. And they didn't mind my doing that. So that's that's what okay. happened. And then I went, got to, to Zamalek and then eventually got to the safe house that I was ready to, to make up. And then even there, you know, Zamalek, it's like a whole large gated community in the sense that okay. it's an island in Cairo. Um, right. Lots of trees, lots of prosperity. There's even a country club in the middle of it. Okay. Uh, so it feels safe. But once I got in there, you'd find the doormen of nice, fancy, old, Bella Pook apartment buildings who were making makeshift weapons, getting chains and blades at the end and whipping okay. them about um, because they they were ready to defend the, their, their property. Um, and that's what I found. I went to a supermarket there first thing to get canned goods and um, the shelves were being cleared out. Other people had the same idea. Mm-hmm. But eventually I, I got to the apartment, turned off the lights and just kept quiet for a while and didn't get back to Tahrir Square until early the next morning. At what point, was there a point for you when you realized that things were turning and that Mubarak may actually have to go? Um, I mean, or that, I guess, not even just that, but that this was a serious protest that had an end in mind. By the end of that day, it was very clear that something big would have to happen. Sure. Uh, something big had happened. This is a moment that I think a lot of Egyptians had thought about for years before. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew that Mubarak was, was going to step down someday. Mm-hmm. And they vaguely thought it was likely that his son would just take over. Right. But if it wasn't going to be that, then it, it was it was going to be cataclysmic. And so, you know, we were all preparing for that cataclysm. And so how long did you stay? Uh, I stayed in, in Egypt for for the whole rest of it. I mean, I, I, I never left until after Mubarak had stepped down and Tahrir Square was, was being tidied up. When I got back the, the day after that first very bloody day, sometimes called the, the Battle of the Camel, when I went, got back to the square mm. the next day, it was a changed place. It was still filled with people. It was still possible mm-hmm. to go in and go back out. And for mm. days afterward, I would spend pretty much all day in the square, returning back to the apartment or to the hotel just to sleep, uh, sure. which meant sometimes spending all night there. But you'd start to see the constituencies developing, start to find different demographics showing up, mm. old people, Al-Qaeda types, there were fewer, I would say, as, as time went by, 
of the kind of young secular democratic activist mm. and a very well-developed defensive network on the periphery of the square of mostly I would say Muslim Brotherhood led uh, snatch gangs people who would be there defensively and they would send out little teams to go and find people who they thought were spies who were lurking on the edges of mm. the square and you know trying to get information so they could go back and describe the, its its weaknesses so they'd go out there they'd grab these people and then they'd bring them back and then they would throw them down into a dark unpleasant hole uh, that was the entrance to us I think one of the subway stops was one of the places I saw being used for this and, and this was this sort of like the the makeshift prison that you had mentioned earlier yes that's exactly what it is it, 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 so it's one of those what were they doing with down. them uh, just holding them there they would take all their IDs they'd beat them up a bit and then they would just keep them there I don't know how often they would let someone go. I, I, I would imagine yeah. they would eventually have to once there's no point. But you right. definitely would not want to be captured like that. And when I went right. there, too, I mean, there, there was a very spooky kind of makeshift security system that the protesters had. I would get followed around. I'd be asked for my ID, asked to explain myself. Mm. And yeah. they were looking for spies. And, you know, yeah. what, was, what does a spy look like? Well, who knows? <laughs> you know, they, they can't, can't a good spy looks like not a spy, right? Right. So th they would be very suspicious, and they'd, they'd, some of them would think, "Oh, maybe he's working for the government." Some would think mm. maybe he's working for the Mossad. Who knows? Oh. But each okay. time, I was eventually allowed to go on my way, mm. and okay. just spent a lot of time just hanging out with people, figuring yeah. out what they thought was going on. At that point, when it got more serious, did it start to feel more like the Muslim Brotherhood was sort of the the organizers, not necessarily of the original protest, but just that they were organizing most of the strategy at this point? No, it it, it actually never felt like that. It, it never felt like the Muslim Brotherhood was, okay. was really running things. In fact, the Muslim Brotherhood had a couple of press conferences where it, it seemed actually obvious that the leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt were kind of clueless about what was going on. Right. They did not understand what the power was of these of these crowds, and they were catching mm. up just like all the other old sure. people were. But on a tactical level, yes, there were there were definitely brotherhood-led groups that were were defending the perimeter, and, and it was not just the brotherhood, but they were very important in making sure that that there was no you know, kind of Tiananmen Square style storming of of Tahrir mm. Square. Sure. And you find you found people who were. One of my favorite images then was, I have a few photographs I took of this, but you'd, you'd find armored personnel carriers and tanks that the military had on the edges. And the question was always, when are they going to turn on those tanks and roll them into the right. square and arrest anybody who, who puts their hand up and shoot anybody who doesn't? And if they did that, they would have to grind the bodies of the people who were sleeping in the treads of the tanks. So you, in the treads, see the, like the, 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 a tank has, you know, these these wheels that are right with the treads, and it's sort people of were like so that people were sleeping on the tanks, not on them in the in but the treads. In the, I see. So if they started rolling, they would oh. literally be ground up in, into a, oh, a, a, a bloody puree, and they were sleeping there so that the tanks they wouldn't be tempted mm. to move. Or if they did decide to move, then there would be a, a moral cost exacted by the right. Doing. That is so, quite a calculation. Yeah. It, so, and the military didn't it, it, the whole time. Those tanks seem to have stayed still. Fortunately, 
in terms of culturally, I, I've seen, like I said, I've seen some footage from this, and I don't think we have any sort of analog in recent history in the U.S. of anything of this importance happening. But it, it seems to me that a lot of times Arab people show their emotions, both in terms of mourning, but also anger in a more forceful and public way than we do here. Is that accurate? Did you witness that? I think it, that may be true. And I think to the extent that it is, it's for reasons that we should elucidate. I, I mean, in the Arab world, in Egypt in particular in this case, you can't express your views mm. through writing. Uh, if your views are out of step with the government, you can't express them by, by voting because there aren't any contested elections. Mm. So if you've got a strong opinion, then sometimes uh, a kind of public outburst is the only way that you can, can show that. Um, mm. I, I dare say in, in, in other non-democracies, it's the same kind of explosive public expression that, that, that you Right. The only type of expression that, that yeah, is more um, kind of pedestrian or more staged versions of, of public expression aren't permitted and they get bottled up. Wow. And, and they, yeah. They, they, they erupt. Sure. Suppose I hadn't thought of that. That's a really interesting question. I don't think it's anything inherent in, any, in other words to the. Sure. Sure. No. It's something that happens again in, in American culture too. Feel like you're not being heard. When it, yeah. When you finally express yourself, it's going to be in a somewhat incontinent way. On February 11th, 2011, after more than two weeks of this uprising in Tahrir Square, President Mubarak stepped down. His vice president transferred power to the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces. This is Egyptian's military. And then in 2012, Egypt held an election. The winner of that election was Mohamed Morsi, a Muslim Brotherhood candidate, who essentially became a dictator. There was eventually a disagreement between him and other leaders about Sharia law and the Constitution, so essentially he then declared himself the final say in absolutely everything involving Egyptian government and life. Protests inevitably broke out, and then the military staged a coup. The military was headed by a man named Abdel Fattah el-Sisi. He then claimed control of the Egyptian government and is still its president today. This has been episode eight of the I Was There When podcast. Thank you so much for joining me and Graham Wood. Again, please head over to IWasThereWhenPodcast.com to see more of Graham's work and some other sources of information about what we talked about today. C.S. Lewis says, what you see and what you hear depend a great deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. I'm Maria Bear. Thanks for listening, guys. I'll see you in two weeks.